We just pulled in a 15 million Series B and build a team that was the right team that I wanted. And that's, as a first time CEO, you know, there are a bunch of things that are critical and one of them is funding and two of them is the right team setting and three is just the right technology. And I felt like all three of those things were there because, you know, I mean, as a first time CEO, by definition, you don't always know what you're doing and the more factors you can put in your favor, the better. But really it was the opportunity to change and deliver value in the space. And that's what motivates our whole team every day is the fact that we're taking these patients who are headed for a terrible, terrible medical outcome and, you know, saving limbs is saving lives. And that's what we're trying to do. Welcome to MedSider Radio, where you can learn from proven med tech and healthcare thought leaders through uncut and unedited interviews. Now, here's your host, Scott Nelson. I recently had the opportunity to interview Dan Rose, the CEO of the French-based medtech company Lemflow. Founded in 2012, Lemflow has transformed the peripheral vascular space by providing a life-saving option to patients suffering from CLTI, otherwise known as critical limb-threatening ischemia. Lemflow offers a minimally invasive technology designed to restore blood flow to the foot, thereby preventing major amputation, resolving pain, and promoting wound healing. Prior to assuming the role of CEO at Lemflow in August of 2016, Dan had more than 16 years of leadership experience in the medical device and venture capital startup arenas. Most recently, he was VP and general manager of the EMEA region for Direct Flow Medical. Here are a few of the topics we discuss in this interview with Dan, how Limflow used a concept that's been in existence since 1912 and then transformed it into a modern therapy that clinicians can reproduce, how the incubator MedStart played an instrumental role in the launch and ultimate success of Limflow, why it's essential to find a physician champion willing to invest time and energy into your technology, overcoming the regulatory challenges presented by an ever evolving MDR landscape, reasons that convinced Dan to assume his first ever CEO role at Limflow, the importance of ongoing R&D and innovation to a company's success and sustained relevance, why the FDA Breakthrough Devices program has been a game changer here in the U.S., the importance of having a mentor, and why Dan would not give advice to his 30-year-old self. There's a lot more we cover in this wide-ranging discussion with Dan, but I wanted to call out a few things before we get started with the interview. First, joining me on this episode as a special guest host is Norbert Joost. Norbert and I go way back. In fact, we used to sell vascular devices into the same cath labs. And uh, now he runs Sales Performance Resources and specializes in recruiting for medical device sales and marketing positions. And he's quite good at it. Norbert not only brings a ton of industry experience to the table, but he's one of the most honest, genuine, and personable people I know. And he's definitely not paying me to record this. So if you're looking for a new gig or need help recruiting, for some open positions, Norbert is your guy. In the show notes for this episode, you'll find a link to learn more about Norbert and his background. Second, after about a two-year hiatus, I've recently started to record and publish MedSider interviews again. And there's a good reason for that. I've been knee-deep in my own startup at Juve, that's J-O-O-V-V, and we manufacture light therapy devices, which is technically referred to as photobiomodulation in the world of academia. It's a really interesting space because our products are class two medical devices, but we're following a more traditional or classic direct-to-consumer online commercialization model. It's been a fun over the last three to four years and I've definitely learned a ton. So if you follow these MedSider interviews, I'll be sharing quite a bit about my experiences. So keep listening. And again, if you want to check out Juve, go to juve.com. That's J-O-O-V-V.com. Third, if you're new to these MedSider interviews and want to be updated when the next interview goes live, head on over to MedSider.com. 
Facebook.com and enter your email address. Rest assured, you won't be spammed. In fact, the only time we'll, uh, you'll likely hear from us is when a new conversation goes live. Again, it's super simple. Just visit medsider.com and right there on the homepage, you'll see the opportunity to enter your email address. And lastly, as a reminder, if you continue to enjoy these interviews, please give us a rating in your podcast app. Just open the reviews tab and click on the old five stars. Thanks again. It really helps out. Alrighty, let's get to the interview with Dan. All right, Dan, welcome to the program. Really appreciate you coming on, especially considering it's uh, late on a Friday evening your time. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And Norbert, you're in your captain's chair, I imagine, there in, uh, in Phoenix. You ready to rock? I am ready to go. As the listeners know, Dan, I provided a kind of an intro to your very impressive background, but to help sort of contextualize everyone for what you're doing now with Limflow, can you give us an idea mm-hmm. of the technology, the product, and maybe just walk us through like what a typical who a typical patient is and what Limflow's technology is helping to solve for? Sure, sure. Absolutely. So, um, I mean, Limflow is working in the, you know, in the peripheral vascular space. And so, you know, outside the heart, but in the vasculature and, and primarily focused on critical ischemia, what everybody's calling now critic, uh, chronic limb threatening ischemia. So CLTI rather than CLI. But uh, essentially, you're dealing with patients who, you know, have compromised arterial vasculature for either from arterial sclerosis and also from the long-term experience of diabetes and are really at risk of losing their limb. And Limflow is focused not only on these difficult end-stage patients, but truly on the end of the end-stage patient. And I think the, the best analogy for this is if we think about where Tabby started or Taver and working with the extreme risk patient population where, you know, surgery was off limits. And the same is true for our patients. We're specifically focusing on a population of patients who have what, what we term no options. So they have no further endovascular or surgical bypass uh, possibility. So they're essentially being consigned to amputation, major lower limb amputation, which is, you know, kind of the scourge of one of the scourges of of modern era. I mean, this is, uh, I mean, there's so many patients out there, you know, roughly 125,000 major lower limb amputations in the U.S. that, you know, it's becoming a bigger and bigger problem because patients, of course, are living longer with their diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And the prevalence is going up with both as well. So, uh, and if you survive long enough, you know, the arteries in your legs are, are, are not going to be able to provide enough blood flow to your feet. And if you have diabetes, developing an ulcer is quite easy to do. And you'll end up with an ulcer, a wound on your foot that can't be healed. And so uh, we're trying to keep those patients from getting a major, major limb amputation. And this still remains kind of... Uh, you know, the morbidity and mortality is extraordinary. I mean, it's listed, New England Journal of Medicine published major lower limb amputation as the fifth or in the top five most most dangerous procedures, uh, surgical procedures in the U.S. You know, average morbidity, uh, mortality, um, depending on a little bit on above the knee or below the knee, but it's roughly 10% in hospital following a major lower limb amputation. So, Something to be avoided, absolutely, and mortality is is very high in the first year, even if you do get out of the hospital. So what we're doing is, uh, what a lymphoid patient is, is a patient who is faced with the, really all of our patients so far treated are indicated for amputation. And what we're trying to do is use the venous system as a pathway to reperfuse the patient. So um, if you think about the arterial system and arterial sclerosis, I mean, you have a lot of calcium and plaque blocking the vessel, the arteries down into the foot. And uh, the best analogy is to think about driving to the airport 
and you get stuck in traffic and, you know, Waze starts to tell you you're going to get there tomorrow and not today. And you look across the median and you realize that that road, the other side of the road, goes where you want to go. And it may not allow you to drive as fast as you want to go. It may not be ideal, but it certainly goes to the airport. And that's what we're doing. So we're creating a connection between the artery and the vein in the lower leg and then knocking out the valves in the veins going down to the foot and in the foot and then using covered stents to channel blood from the arterial side in the tibial arteries into the veins and driving it down into the distal distal pedal area and then healing wounds, which is the real goal. Because if you can heal a wound, you can normally keep the leg on. So uh, so that's the concept. It's a concept that's been around, first surgically reported in 1912, but with a lot of morbidity and mortality. And uh, what we've done is essentially take the principle of that and turn it into a purely percutaneous, reproducible, low morbidity, teachable, adoptable therapy that can be deployed, you know, by whether they're interventional radiologists, vascular surgeons, interventional cardiologists, angiologists, anyone working in the lower leg can do this procedure. And so that's, that's, what, that's what we're trying to do. It's, it's super fascinating. I think it, that helps uh, create a little bit of context for the rest of the conversation because really curious to learn a little bit more about what attracted you to limb flow, especially considering your experience, but also how you think about the early stages of bringing you know, this technology to life. But before we go there, let's talk a little bit more about the technology. You said it's been around since like the early 20th century. This stuff always fascinates me because it's like, why are we not seeing this until today? And so can you help us you know, kind of go back in time a little bit and understand like how, how this concept you know, went from something that was seen in textbook to like applying actual percutaneous techniques and making this somewhat of a reality? Yeah. So, I mean, what had happened is that this, this has occurred in many different areas of, of medicine. So uh, the principle, you know, someone proved the principle in, in, in a dog, in fact, and then uh, people had done small surgical uh, series, vascular surgeon here, vascular surgeon there, as kind of a bailout trying to save legs at the last step, you know, really after patients have failed multiple interventions. But no one had ever really done, you know, taken a look at one, how to do it percutaneously, but two, really look at it in a, in a structured, methodical way. And there are a bunch of reasons why it's very difficult to do surgically. And one big reason, which is that you create a large surgical wound. And when you create a large surgical wound in a patient that already has trouble healing wounds, you tend to lose the leg because of the surgical wound. So there are a lot of reasons why it had not been done percutaneously. But ultimately what happened was that physician, very well-known cardiologist, Martin Rothman from the UK, who ultimately became the chief medical officer for Medtronic Vascular and who has always been an entrepreneur, noted that people were trying this in the cardiac setting. And some patients were doing very well but some patients were not. And obviously, if you fail in the cardiac setting, the price of failure is very high. But he thought, well, maybe this is something that we can do and prove out in the leg. And being a super busy guy, he went to um, an incubator called MD Start in Europe, which was founded by Medtronic and Covidian and Soren and Sofinova Ventures and Versant Ventures as a kind of way to take physician ideas and uh, System and ultimately take them and incubate them if they could, you know, if they looked promising. So that's where the experience and history came together to try and start this percutaneous approach. Acquired some IP from uh, the old transvascular business that was acquired by Medtronic and founded by Josh Mackauer at NDA and started to build prototypes 
and a business around that partner at MD Star, Tim Lenahan, who's an incredible guy. He really took the lead on founding the business in 2012, and I joined in 2016. So there was a kind of four-year period where they were developing the prototypes and doing first in man in Singapore before ultimately, you know, moving into uh, the CE marketing phase. You know, when I was with Cordis, we had that uh, Outback reentry catheter, and um, that's, that's kind of what this reminds me of, that I can just picture this doctor who's almost like a mechanical engineer in their mind trying to reinvent a better way to do this. And they probably saw the, the reentry catheters that are out there and, you know, tried to come up with a, a better way to try and save these patients' lives. Well, that's exactly what happened. So, you know, when they were trying to do the first procedures, you know, they really were taking technology that was off the shelf and starting the work and then realizing as they as they went forward what technologies we needed to develop internally to optimize the procedure, to perfect it. And there's several pieces of it that were not available off the shelf. And so what Winflow is today is kind of a suite of technologies. It's a, an ultrasound-based crossing system, you know, with a needle on an arterial uh, send catheter, if you think about it that way, from ultrasound and a venous receive catheter. It's a valvulotome, a reverse or push valvulotome that allows us to, in a very elegant way, knock out the valve in the veins. And then uh, a conical covered stent so that we we can match the diameter of the artery with the vein, with the diameter of the vein, and then cut our own covered stent platform that allows us to really channel the blood from the crossing all the way down to the foot. So, and we have a bunch of other further uh, innovations in progress. So it's been an experience of doing exactly that, taking what's there and learning as you go. And I think that's something that anyone who's been involved in early innovation in the med tech space can really understand. And in terms of a timeline, Dan, can you help us understand that a little bit more? I know you mentioned you joined in 2016. When did Dr. Rothman first bring this concept to MD Start? I think it was around 2011. And then okay. they founded the company in 2012 and uh, it did first in man in Singapore through basically being uh, introduced to a vascular surgeon named Stephen Coombe, who was very interested in the space and willing to take on the kind of project from a medical clinical point of view of just, you know, you always have to find that physician who's willing to invest their energies and passion into figuring out something like this and go through the ups and downs. And so uh, there was a series of patients, I think it was seven patients done in the first in man series in Singapore. And that really proved the concept led to the, the raising of the series A and the doing of a small CE marking study and on the back of that, being able to raise a Series B and really take the company and hire a full-time CEO, which was myself, because Tim was, you know, working on several projects at the same time. So, uh, I mean, MD Start is a is a fantastic concept because what you end up with is a startup that has been incubated by a person, a CEO, with with tremendous amount of passion, but also tremendous amount of knowledge about how to do it well. Uh, a lot of first-time CEOs don't know how to put together IP portfolio. They don't know how to put together a regulatory strategy. They don't know how to do uh, a lot of the different work that needs to be done to really create a strong foundation for a growth company because they're doing it for the first time. If you have somebody that's doing it for their sixth or seventh time and has had tremendous success doing it, then I think uh, you're going to end up with a higher likelihood of success over the long term. Got it. And so, what, uh, oh, go ahead, Norbert. No, I was just going to say, what determines then, you know, with MD Start, Dr. Rossman's a British, you know, physician, do they 
what makes them decide whether you guys start up in Europe or, you know, go for the CE mark or whether you come to the U.S. and go for FDA approval? Well, I mean, that's a great question because it touches on some of the dynamics that have changed over time, right? I mean, with MDR and, and a lot of other things that have happened in the space. Ultimately, you know, MD Start was based in Switzerland back then. They, I think Martin Rothman was living in the U.S. Tim Linham was based in the uh, Czech Republic, but they ultimately founded the company in, uh, in Germany and did a lot of the engineering work with Contract Medical International there and uh, had the IP there. And there's a tremendous amount of medical engineering consultancy talent in Germany and sub-suppliers. So, so ultimately, it was set there because MD Start was European-based. And at that time, I think the CE Mark process was certainly, it was a whole lot easier and more predictable than it is today. And I, I hope I don't have to spend too much time talking about NDR because I'll just get more and more upset as we go. Uh, but then that was the real milestone that a startup could could aim for, right? Getting CE Mark, generating some value in the company, generating on the back of that CE Mark further funding, which is the lifeblood of a startup. And so that that was kind of how they structured it. I think people now are looking much more at the EFS, you know, early feasibility program in the U.S., which we've completed a 32 patient EFS. So I'm pretty familiar with how that works as a pathway than uh, than going through the old CE marking, you know. But we're we're a European company. We're based in Paris, and about half of our employees now are in Europe, and then half for Limflow are actually in the U.S. So, and our leadership team is actually split between Europe and the U.S. So we're a truly international organization. There's two things that really stand out kind of listening to your answer there, Dan. And I, I don't want to spend too much on MDR, but I would like to spend a little bit of time. So I don't want to go too into the weeds because it's something that, that we're dealing with uh, with Juve, you know, the, the company that I'm involved with. It's a startup that I'm involved with. And trying to navigate those waters is can get really complex, like really quick. And and it almost seems really unnecessarily complex. And so can you just like speak to maybe what the challenges are with MDR really within the context of what other entrepreneur, medtech entrepreneurs should be thinking about? Yeah. I mean, I think it means a lot of, MDR means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, right? And groups. I mean, if you're a class one device, I mean, you know, you, you may be asked to generate clinical data on things that are very difficult to generate clinical data on, right? It's difficult to do a clinical trial on a scalpel. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. some of the things that are being asked to recertify are just difficult practically to do, especially when you have hundreds of different products yourself, right? It's not incredibly difficult for us at Limflow because, you know, we are generating a lot of clinical data. We're already, you know, a class three system. And so a lot of what MDR is requiring is not necessarily things, and we're already active with the FDA. So for us, it's an inconvenience because it's causing systemic disruption with the notified bodies, right? You can't get things pushed through because they're so busy trying to figure out the MDR and they're not sure what exactly the requirements are. So the whole system is kind of overwhelmed, as it were. And so as a startup, you have to really try and understand, can you understand and determine well in advance what the notified body is going to want from you to get approval. And I'm not sure they can clearly tell you today if you came in fresh. Two, are you going to be able to get their attention or will they even take you as a client today, which is another challenge? And then three, what is your timeline going to be? Because our timelines, and I won't share who our notified body is or what what the timelines are, but they're very long and very unpredictable. And if you're trying to, for example, use CE Mark as a milestone for funding, 
well, how do you know how much funding you need if it could be six months for a response or 18 months for a response, right? So I think it's become really challenging to have a predictable system, which, and it's created, I think, just a higher bar overall, which in some ways isn't a bad thing, but in other ways is making Europe less attractive as a place to start. And I do think that some people are certainly either choosing to go to the U.S. first or staying in the U.S., and even looking at uh, the U.S. and China or China first. And it's very easy for Europe to become the third or fourth place you go to for regulatory approval rather than first. And as an American who's lived in Europe for 20 years, I'm a big promoter of the European system. I mean, this is where I've spent a lot of my professional career. and, And it's disappointing to see this shift happen. Yeah, it's really interesting because that used to be such a trend is to commercialize in Europe first, primarily from a regulatory standpoint, because FDA was, you know, maybe more onerous from a timeline perspective, but it seems like those winds are changing. They are, and it will be some time before, with the best will in the world, and I think, you know, the parties are trying to do their best, but it's a, it's a real challenge at this point, we can say that. Got it. The other thing that is interesting that, and I don't think we maybe necessarily need to, to talk a lot about it, but I was unaware that there's a strong med tech ecosystem in Germany. And I know specific to what we're doing at Juve as an example, it's amazing to see what's happening, you know, the things that are happening in, in Malaysia and how many other companies are pulling out of, you know, Shenzhen as an example. But Germany, I didn't, I didn't know that was a hotbed for, for med tech. Sure. There's always been a strong med tech presence in Germany. I mean, uh, think about Biotronic, which is a, you know, I mean, you don't hear about it much in the U.S., but is a massive multi-billion dollar, you know, family owned, but huge presence and a lot of engineering talent out of there. You know, the Abiomed technology came out of Germany, you know, I mean, go down, go down the list. If you, if you include Switzerland in there, then you, you know, you've got Semetis, you've got uh, Yenavalve. I mean, you, there's a, there's just a list after Yomed acquired by CryoLife recently. I mean, just, you know, story after story after story of large med tech presence in Germany. And remember Germany in, in Europe, is the place you commercialize first if you can get reimbursement. I mean, TAVI adoption was very much driven by Germany. Hmm. And that drove the the whole global expansion of that therapy because being able to see how quickly and explosively this could be adopted by the community meant that, you know, you could invest in the space and you could drive towards U.S. approval and have data from Germany to do so. So it's certainly a, a great place to be. We're now in the French ecosystem, which is also a good ecosystem, but you know, not not truly comparable to the Silicon Valley or Minneapolis. I mean, those are those are kind of a different, uh, you know, an order of magnitude different in terms of you know what's going on. Sure, Norbert. If you're if you don't have anything else to add, I, I'd love to like use this as a as a transition point to talk a little bit about more about Dan, what you um what drew you to Limflow and kind of how you began to think about taking the technology and commercializing it, whether it's in Europe or maybe in, you know future plans of commercializing in in the U.S as well. But I know, I know we'll get to this in, later on in the, in the discussion about maybe some of the learnings you took away from your experience at DirectFlow. But, you know, what was the appeal to, to, to Limflow, you know, back in, you know, 2015, 2016, when you, when you joined the team as the CEO? I had known Tim Linehan for some time, and he'd actually talked to me about Limflow a couple years before I actually took this job. But 
I, I was very clear. I'm like, that, that's not really my stage, the early prototype stage and first in man. I mean, I, I've been involved with it, but I was, I was really looking forward to, you know, the, the time when the technology could be somewhat de-risked because, you know, you're as a CEO, you're, you're and taking on any startup job. I mean, you're really investing yourself in completely in a, in a technology, but I had looked at it and f- tracked it, and I could see the potential. I mean, a lot of what we do in medtech, for better or for worse, is uh, you know iterations or improvements on current technologies. You know, a new flavor of stent. And I'd done that. I mean, I led marketing for coronary vascular for Medtronic and the whole drug leak stent business, et cetera, and and that was gratifying. But I was looking for an opportunity where we could really deliver a transformative kind of value to a space. And the more I looked at the CLI or, or CLTI space, and the more I understood about Linflow, the clearer it was that this was a tremendous opportunity. And also to do that, you only have to know that the only two categories of products approved to treat critical ischemia in the United States by the FDA are plain old balloon angioplasty and I think one single atherectomy indication. So this is one of the hardest atherosclerotic situations and cardiovascular situations to deal with, and it's a knife to a gunfight, right? And the opportunity to make a huge impact on that space is what drew me in. Also, I mean, Linflow was a clean slate at that point, so there were no employees. Everything was done by consultants, and so I was able to come in to a well-funded situation. We just pulled in a 15 million Series B and build a team that was the right team that I wanted. And that's, as a first-time CEO, you know, there are a bunch of things that are critical, and one of them is funding, and two of them is the right team setting, and three is just the right technology. And I felt like all three of those things were there because, you know, I mean, as a first-time CEO, by definition, you don't always know what you're doing, and the more factors you could put in your favor, the better. But really, it was the opportunity to change and deliver value in the space. And that's what motivates our whole team every day is the fact that we're taking these patients who are headed for a terrible, terrible medical outcome. And, you know, saving limbs is saving lives. And that's what we're trying to do. Hey there, it's Scott. And thanks for listening in so far. The rest of this conversation is only available via our private podcast for MedSider Premium members. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. You'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Renee Ryan, CEO of Cala Health, Nadim Yared, CEO of CVRX, and so many others. As a premium member, you'll get to join live interviews with these incredible medical device and health technology entrepreneurs. In addition, you'll get a copy of every volume of MedSider Mentors at no additional cost. To learn more, head over to MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium.